So today is the day we uh, look at the second noble truth. And the second noble truth, luckily, simply distills to looking at this aspect of craving, tanha. And again, the, um, the Pali word tanha um, is more closely defined as thirst. And so again, if you have that image that if you um, really needed water and your mouth was dry and maybe you were very dehydrated, what's the situation you're in is unbearable and the solution is something else. It's getting water. So you're thirsting for something you don't have and that's tanha. But using the word thirst a lot doesn't work as well as using the word craving. So we use the word craving, but if you can imagine that image that you're dehydrated and over there is water, so there's this yearning for what you don't have. There's this seeking, but the seeking is not um, casual. The seeking has an obsession to it, looking for, seeking for happiness, well-being. That's tanha. And probably, um, as uh, Duke was saying yesterday, the Buddha may not have known about evolution. And now that we know about evolution, and I've studied evolution before, we're the descendants of beings that had tanha, the cravings that had us fight to survive. Beings that didn't have such a strong fight to survive probably didn't make it. With, uh, through all the struggles and all the hardships that have happened over you know, a billion years of life on planet Earth. So Tanha is probably um, woven into us. But the thing about it is it's not actually hardwired. Hardwired things you can't do anything about. So Tanha is actually softwired. It's, it's there as a, um, at birth as an urge. We all have these urges but you actually can do something about it. You can reduce this um, strategy so you're not as compelled by it. And you actually can reduce this strategy to zero. And that's the moment of enlightenment. When people become fully enlightened, they've eradicated tanha from their system. So that's the promise of the third noble truth, complete emancipation, is when tanha no longer arises in our system. We have other strategies of how we get by, of how we create relationships to the world around us. But no longer does this tanha arise in us. You'll notice something quite close to your own, maybe not perfect enlightenment, but your own sense of freedom, just when you, you feel content with the way things are and tanha is not ruling you, in that moment you can say tanha is dormant, but it's not eradicated because on another day in another situation it comes back to life. And so many of us have dormant tanha that is triggered into its um, live expression and we kind of suffer under it, and then it goes dormant again if it doesn't, you're in quite a hard time of life, ruled by obsessions and fears, and it's sort of one crisis after another of hopes and them being dashed and achieved. So if Tanha is very active in your life, chances are at the time of uh, either great external crisis or great internal crisis of pleasure and pain and a lot of consternation around them, that tends not to be the case for most people to only have unending tanha. So it's something that uh, grows in strength and then diminishes and then goes dormant again, grows in strength, diminishes, goes dormant again. And it's the, the weakening of tanha that is the direction of our emancipation, our freedom. And it's the eradication of it that is our complete freedom. And that's the, really the architecture of the Four Noble Truths is that we suffer the optional suffering in life is born out of tanha. The uh, abandoning of all this optional suffering happens because we've abandoned tanha. 
And that's the development in our understanding of the second noble truth, understanding how tanha works, understanding how we unconsciously feed it and follow it and support it. So how do we unconscious, how do we consciously begin to diminish it, not feed it, uh, not encourage it, and then begin to eradicate it from our system? And how do we do that to completion? And that's the path described in the fourth noble truth. All the aim of the fourth noble truth, every, every part of the eightfold path has a purpose and its purpose is the eradication of tanha. It's not necessarily to feel as a feel good experience. It's not necessarily to have a moment of calm. Moments of calm are great, but moments of calm in the service of eradicating tanha takes on a whole nother level of purpose. So that's what makes the, uh, the fourth noble truth, all these activities we do on the Buddhist path, what gives them context is there for the eradication of tanha. And that eradication of tanha eradicates the optional suffering, the difference between pain and suffering. So uh, at least it's simple and it's not too complex of a, of a philosophy. In this articulation, actually doing it can be intricate, but the architecture of the Four Noble Truths, there is uh, this optional suffering. There is dukkha, and we know, as we get to know dukkha more deeply, we understand the part of dukkha that's sort of woven into the human experience, the part that's extra. The part that's extra comes from tanha. The abandoning of tanha is the abandoning of this optional dukkha, this extra dukkha. And the Eightfold Path is how we do that. In the first discourse, uh, the Buddha <clears throat> outlines three types of tanha that we should put specific attention on. Because these three types of tanha cause the most uh, dukkha. They cause the most disturbance in our lives. The first kind of tanha is related to sense pleasures. And really it's related to Vedana. So in the first discourse he talks about sense pleasures. Ta uh, kama tanha, K-A-M-A, -A, which is the experience of the senses, kama. Not karma, but kama. The obsession around that is one type of tanha. The second two are related to um, a second level strategy we have around happiness. And that's what we want to become. So our futurizing of our happiness and really trying to uh, control and um, design a future based around happiness, based around pleasure, um, is a second level strategy. So wanting a different cookie is kama tanha. It's I want the sense pleasure. I want, I want the pleasure of my tongue to be different. Going up and talking to the barista and making a kind of a, lodging a complaint that's effective and gets me my cookie back. That's <clears throat> the becoming. They call it bhava tanha. Bhava is this, um, this urge to become most of us spend a lot more time sort of organizing our future, trying to organize it so that it will be pleasant, at least not unpleasant. We're strategizing not, being, uh, not having an unpleasant future and hoping we at least have a pleasant future. And then sometimes being willing to have a neutral future and getting, letting go of pleasure as long as we don't have to have the unpleasant or willingness to have unpleasant as long as I can manage it, as long as I get I'll, I'm, I'll deal with a certain amount of unpleasant in my future, but I don't want to deal with all that's possible. So futurizing is this activity called bhava, B-H-A-V-A, -A, bhava. So there's bhava tanha, and that's the, um, the craving we have about our future. Well, the things we crave in the future that we're trying to set up, and how often our mind goes to the future, you'll notice that in meditation, it may not really be about chocolate chip cookies or pleasant music or things that are fuzzy to touch. 
it's not so much about I'm actually really obsessed about um, pleasure at the sense doors, but I am spending a lot of time trying to construct and organize my future so that I am at least happy, at least content, and staving off these uh, things that would make me unhappy. So a lot of that futurizing and the obsession around our futurizing is becoming craving, the craving for becoming. Does that make sense? It's making it across at least conceptually. The third type of tanha, third type of craving, is the not wanting of experience. So spending just as much time trying to avoid something in the future or dreading something in the future it's an unpleasant experience, but you really don't want it. And so you spend a lot of time, how do I not have this experience happen? There, um, it happened to me recently, it was funny, I had to, impromptuly I was asked to, to participate in a public event. And my mind really tried a third grade strategy of a sore throat. I was like, I really don't want it. Oh, yeah. See, it's not a good night for me. I was like, oh, please. Please, come on. Got to come up with a better one than that because that will be embarrassing. These people are like, oh, yeah, Temple, you're a public speaker. Why don't you join us? I was like, um, oh, yeah. It's like, no, 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 no. That's, it's V-I, V-bhava-tanha, the, the not liking, the not wanting. And that not wanting a future to happen can be very compelling as much as wanting certain futures to happen. It's like, oh, no, 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 not that future. No way, I do not want to experience that. And I watched my mind kind of get into this, like, how do I get out of this? How do I get out of this? In a way that preserves my image. <laughs> like, It's like, wow, that's a lot of consternation. Why don't we just do it? And it's like, no, 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 not an option, not an option. Not tonight, not tonight. It's like, you could just say no. You could just say, no, you don't want to. Why all this drama of like, oh, the sore throat? And, uh, if you really knew me, I would, I would love to. It's like, wow, it's a lot of drama. Just say, no, you're not, you don't want to, or do it. But this um, obsession, trying to avoid a future that was heading my way, was um, the craving not to become. Here's this future, no, I do not want it. What can we do about it? And being very agitated about that is a craving, it's a thirst for non-becoming. I don't want that future to come. I used to work at a, at a wilderness camp and um, the more experienced staff would take the older kids out on longer wilderness trips. And then they would come back at the end of this summer experience and all the parents would come and they would hear the stories of what had happened out in the wilderness. and. I saw the future that I was going to have to, I really wanted to lead those trips, but I was dreading the idea of coming back from those trips and then being in front of a hundred parents and telling the story, which you know, at most would have been 20 minutes, maybe a half hour. But I used to get so anxious. And I was trying to, years in advance, preparing what I would say, how I would say it, studying what people had said, because I really didn't want that experience. I didn't want to get up there and make a fool of myself and kind of, be anxious, and some people did it so well, and some people actually did it badly. I was like, oh, God, I do not want that. I do want that. I want to become that. That's really beautiful. Oh, my God, I'm so afraid I'm going to become that. So seriously, like five, ten years before it ever was happening, I was like, I want to lead those trips, but like, what am I going to do about that? And so I used to try to rehearse it. I used to be like, what would I do? I was like, well, yeah, start with a joke. That always works. I'm like, wow, five years in advance, I'm already like, Got to start with a joke. What joke should I use? Got to remember that joke. And <clears throat> I was really distressing over these twenty minutes. I was that was the, that was my young younger self strategy. It still happens unconsciously. If a, if futures present themselves that are really delightful, like oh my god, who knew I could have that future? And then I could unconsciously like yeah yeah let's go for that. And I like that. I like that. And I get I'm not sure it's going to happen, so I start to really kind of grasp at it. Or future presents itself as like, oh, no way. I had to give a talk on another retreat. I was okay with it. 
But then I got a cold um, two days beforehand, and the cold got worse and worse. And so this stress started. I was like, don't know if I should give the talk. I'm, I have, I'm pretty ill. And I got more and more ill. I was like, no, no, I do not want to give this talk. I'm not feeling well. It wouldn't be good for them. It's like, and then I got a fever just before the talk. I was like, this is a train wreck. I, I really got to back out of this one. And I walked around. I couldn't find any of the other teachers. Um, Everybody's at dinner or whatnot. And I was like, how do I get out of this? I got to get out of this. I was like, well, what if you just did it? What if you just did it and had the experience? Because you can't find anybody else to give the talk. And at this point, them, there being no talk or the talk you could have given, why don't you just do it? But I had to really manage this craving that was trying to like come out of dormancy and I don't want to do it. I, I have a good excuse. How do I get out of this? Hello, can I get out of this? <clears throat> so I had to manage the tanha. And so I was like, oh, it's still there. It still wants to, to it's, a, it's a future I don't want, but it's coming my way and it's making me really anxious. So that as my mind got more agitated, my solutions got fewer and fewer and they got more desperate. And then these strategies of like, I have a cold or I can't do it or shame started coming up all around this future I didn't want to have and the type of drama that came along with it. So these are three places that um, our obsessions can get quite large. And it's the obsessions, it's the obsessive quality of tanha where we lock in. And once tanha locks in on you, it t- you actually have to be quite mindful to get yourself out of it because it will really take over your worldview. It will really start to tell you things. Your mind starts giving you really bad advice fueled by this tanha, this craving. I can't be happy with the way things are. My happiness is over there. And now that, that, that makes me anxious. How do I actually get it back? How do I get my happiness? It's elsewhere. When you're really entranced in it, it's hard to wake up out of it. So working with tanha, one, you just have to know, and this takes time to develop, that whenever your happiness is elsewhere, or whenever a certain event is going to uh, really destroy you, you're probably in this view colored by tanha. That future, I can't, I can't stand that future, or I must have that future, or I really like, I hope they have this certain type of you know, lunch happening because I really want to taste that you know, whatever, pizza or whatever it is, you're being seduced into and really dominated by tanha. But they're easier to work with when they're smaller. And so um, it's, it, you, it's important to work with them when they're huge, but they're easier to work with when they're smaller. So you have to work with both of them. And so the practice is to see... Um, if you're having an unpleasant experience, do you have to be unhappy when it's happening? And is your happiness and well-being somewhere else? Or what's the type of well-being you can have even when things are unpleasant? So that's working with the tanha that might come around unpleasant experiences. Or if your happiness is elsewhere or feels really precarious, chances are you've bought into the view that my happiness and well-being are really tenuous right now because I'm not sure if this person I have a crush on likes me back. And if they do, that's great. If they don't, that's horrible. I'm suddenly, my well-being is now teetering on whether somebody else likes me. I've bought into the view that Tanha brings up. My happiness is precarious and it's built on these conditions. And so you win your well-being back. And you win it back by this practice of presence coming into presence, feeling your breath, meeting the moment it's in and saying, in a moment, this pain is bearable. In a moment, my actual well-being can be recovered if I can meet this pain moment by moment versus all the drama that's being uh, fomented by the fact that there's pain in my body or pain in my experience. So that's one way with mindfulness coming right back in to the moment you're in and reclaiming your well-being from this older habit that assumes it's elsewhere and then has to pursue it. Gave you a handout of um, this sutta, this talk, which is really, uh, really well known in Buddhist circles and spiritual circles because it's so incredibly succinct
But not a lot of people have actually read the actual sutta. So um, we're going to do that. Because in its simplicity, the two arrow sutta, the sutta, it's a good little little teaching. But when you really look at the structure of it, it it's quite profound. So this is the Buddha talking to some of his followers. Um, and he says, Bhikkhus, an ordinary person experiences pleasant Vedana, and the Pali is Sukha Vedana. Sukha is the opposite of Dukkha. It has the same root as sugar, actually. The S-U of Sukha is like the S-U of sugar. So pleasant, an ordinary person experiences pleasant Vedana, painful Vedana, Dukkha Vedana, and neutral Vedana. And the Pali is A-Dukkha, A-Sukha Vedana. Neither. A well-instructed disciple also experiences pleasant, painful, and neutral Vedana. So that's an important opening line. No matter what you do with this practice, you don't just get more pleasant Vedana. You don't find a way of not experiencing unpleasant Vedana. Whether you're an ordinary worldling person or whether you're a trained person, you'll experience all three of these dukkhas. The Buddha at the end of his life had back pain. He had dukkha Vedana. So that doesn't go with practice. So what is the difference, the distinction, the distinguishing factor between a well-instructed disciple and the ordinary person? And the, the monks following say, uh, you're the source of these teachings, so please tell us. That's what that paragraph roughly says. In that case, because listen and pay close attention, I will speak as you say. So down here he says, Venerable One said, when touched with painful Vedana, the ordinary person then also experiences sorrow, grief, lamentation, beats their chest, and becomes distraught. So they feel two pains, a physical and a mental pain, just as if a person were shot with an arrow and right afterwards they were shot with another arrow, so they feel so that they would feel two they would feel the pain of two arrows. In the same way, when touched with painful Vedana, the ordinary person sorrows, grieves, laments, beats their chest, becomes distraught. So they feel two pains, a physical and a mental pain. And he goes on from there. As they are touched by painful Vedana, they become resistant. Then in they who so resist painful Vedana, an underlying tendency of resistance against painful Vedana comes to underlie their mind. Touched by painful Vedana, they yearn for sensual pleasure, kama sukha. Kama is the, ple- is the sensual part, sukha is the pleasure. Why is that? Because the ordinary person does not know any escape from painful Vedana aside from sensual pleasure. You're having a bad day, you can't meet the bad day. The only thing you know how to do is to have a pleasant experience, to seek out a pleasant experience. Unable to meet the direct experience, a yearning or sensual pleasure comes up. Why is that? Because the ordinary person does not know an escape from painful Vedana aside from sensual pleasure. Then, in those who seek sensual pleasure, an underlying tendency to lust, raga, and raga is the one word that sometimes gets substituted for tanha. So lusting, obsessing, craving for pleasant Vedana comes to underlie their mind. They do not know as it is, as it actually is present, the arising and ending of these Vedana, nor the gratification, danger, and escape connected with these Vedana. The gratification, danger, escape is a teaching that there are pleasant experiences the dangers we get attached to them. The escape is knowing they're impermanent, so we let go. In they who lack that knowledge, an underlying tendency towards ignorance as to neutral Vedana comes to underlie their mind. So because there is painful experience and we don't know how to deal with it, we resist it. That resisting fuels an obsession with seeking out pleasure and making sure we have a lot of pleasure because we don't know how to deal with the fact that pain arises in life. When you are fueled by seeking pleasure and running away from pain, neutral experiences, they just don't have any currency. 
in that fight. And so we become ignorant of neutral experiences. We tune out of them. We spend our time charting out how we're going to secure our happiness and run away from this pain. These are the underlying tendencies that all of us have. When you sit in meditation, the breath is fairly neutral. The mind wanders. Why does it wander? Because we have these underlying tendencies that have been cultivated, not only in our life, in previous lives, and those previous lives could be the multiple life model, or you can even just look at the, that the, the descendants of evolution, and even amoeba have, once anything could move, what it moved was towards pleasure and away from pain. Amoeba retract from something, and they squeeze and ooze out towards other things. They're seeking out their own well-being, and they're running from things that don't, that don't uh, support them. <clears throat> when they experience painful, pleasant, painful, or neutral Vedana, they feel it as one fettered by it, fettered as, as if chained to it or handcuffed to it. Such a one bhikkhu is called an ordinary person who is fettered by birth, old age, death, sorrow, lamentation, grief, pain, grief, despair. They are fettered by suffering. This I declare. We get fettered by our obsessions, we cling to them, that fuels this desire to become, it shapes our future. We then try to live into those futures. We can't control it all and eventually we feel despair because our strategies can't win because we're not living in accord with things. You can't just run from pain. So all your strategies of running from pain don't work. All my strategies to avoid public speaking unless the conditions are just right, don't work. So I, I am chained to my desire not to have them, and I'm chained to my hope that I can keep a type of happiness that isn't agitated by unrequited public speaking invitations. <laughs> so as long as I'm playing that game, I'm trapped in the game. There's no way out of that game, and I try to get better at it, but I'm still on the board which means I'm going to lose eventually. So I'm fettered by it, I'm chained to it, I'm handcuffed to it. Now the well-instructed disciple, when touched by painful Vedana, does not sorrow, grieve, lament, does not beat their chest or become distraught. So they feel one pain, physical but not mental. It is just as if a person were shot with an arrow and right afterwards they were not shot by another arrow. So they would feel the pain of only one arrow. In the same way, when touched by painful Vedana, the well-instructed disciple does not sorrow, grieve, lament, beat their chest to become distraught. So they feel pain, physical, but not mental. That's a very important line because in every moment, it is said that there is Vedana. But actually, in every moment, there are two Vedanas. And this gets a little bit into more advanced Buddhist psychology. You can have a pleasant mind state in contact with an unpleasant experience. You can have a pleasant mind state in contact with a neutral experience. And you can have a pleasant mind state in contact with a pleasant experience. Is this not so? It's more challenging we have to train in it to have a pleasant mind state in contact with an unpleasant experience and a neutral experience. But you can train in that. And that's what we're doing. Every time we visit pain and we learn to calm ourselves down, it's okay, there's pain, but the mind doesn't have to be distraught. Untaught out in the world, those things are, are linked like a chain, like a huge chain. Unpleasant experience means unhappy mind. Pleasant experience means happy mind. So you go on vacation, the brochure, all your sense stores are going to be touched by pleasant experiences. It's going to smell good, it's going to look good, it's going to feel good, it's going to sound good. Nothing but pleasure all around you. So we think pleasant experience means I get happy experience, happy mind. And it's just not the case. You go on that, you may or may not be happy. If you're unhappy, who's at fault? You? The experience? The fault was in the belief that just pleasant experiences can create a happy mind. So <clears throat> if you can follow this, there's actually 
nine relationships here. You can have a pleasant experience, although pleasant mind state connected to a painful, neutral, and pleasant experience. You can have a neutral mind connected to pain, pleasure, and neutrality. And you can actually have a painful mind state connected to pain, neutrality, and pleasure. You can have a painful mind state and still be connected to a pleasant experience, like I was with that cookie. I was agitated. It was unpleasant. I didn't like it. I wanted to do something about it. Though there was sugar, butter, and chocolate on my sense door, the mind was quite agitated. That's a small example, but you can go on vacation, best one ever, and still be in a bad mood. You get a cold, you're in a bad mood. It's sort of like, the company is not what you liked. You get bad news and all of a sudden, even though all the sense doors are good, there's sort of this like, my mind's not happy. It's not content. Where's this contentment I thought would be here? Does that make sense? So it's, it's one whole thing just to know there is Vedna in every moment. It's a whole other thing, and this is very sophisticated, to understand that there are two Vedanas in every moment, the quality of mind and the quality of the experience. The quality of the experience, and you want to uncouple them. You want to break that link so that the mind is drawing its happiness not from the experience, not out of the Vedana of the experience. That's a caught, trapped relationship. You can uncouple them so that the mind remains in a place of well-being no matter what the experience is happening. And that cut is not to become numb. It actually is by consciously feeling it with wisdom and capacity. So you want to improve that relationship and that improving begins to actually uncouple it. Does that make sense? Do you want to develop that? One time, my, um, about 10 years ago, my appendix was about to burst. And if you've ever had that experience or heard about it, it's very painful. So it started with pain in my abdomen. It got worse, it got worse, it got worse. And I was trying to deal with it. And at some point, I was like, this is not normal. Something's going on. Talked to my housemate. Went to the hospital. They said, yeah, your appendix is about to burst. We caught it in time, so there's going to be a surgery. And then <clears throat> I got morphine. Everything got real <laughs> pleasant. Um, the pain disappeared. And so I was like, oh, okay, this is happening. But then the surgery happened. I was in the hospital for a few days. And it was unpleasant. There was, a, there was pain and recovery around that. But I would say <clears throat> the four days around the event were actually some of the happiest, uh, the happiest I've experienced because unbeknownst to me, I had all these friends who cared and they all rallied and they came by. And I was like, this is great. I'm in a hospital room, got this nice little recliner bed, being fed three meals a day, don't have to do anything. And then people are just dropping by to say hi. They don't do this in my normal life. This is great. So I was like talking to people and like there was definitely pain here. But <clears throat> that pain wasn't making me unhappy. It's not like, oh, I'm so glad you're here, but yeah, this pain is so bad. Like, no, actually there's pain here, but I'm surrounded by friends. This is lovely. I can deal with the pain, this level of pain. I can, I can meet this level of pain. <clears throat> Another experience, um, a small one. When I broke my wrist, as I was saying, the time I spent wishing I hadn't broke my wrist was agitating. Then, because of this training, I said, that's not helpful. I'm adding to my suffering. I did break my wrist, and there is pain. What is the pain? Okay, it's sharp, it's shooting, it's, there's a dull ache. Whenever I move a certain way, there's this click, and that's very painful. Okay, there is unpleasant Vedana in my wrist. But when I could actually meet that, my mind relaxed, and there wasn't unpleasant Vedana in my mind even though there was unpleasant Vedana in my wrist. That's the direction, that's the compass heading of this practice, is not to only try to organize our lives so there's only pleasant Vedana. That strategy can only go so far. We do it, we take our hand off the hot stove, we do try to enjoy pleasant experience with friends, but not as our only strategy. There's a deeper strategy, which is the ability to grow the capacity to meet a greater range of experiences and recover your well-being. So what that looks like is you're going along, your challenge, your sense of happiness and well-being start to slide because, oh no, this has happened. 
you catch it, it's like, no, no, let's not couple my happiness and well-being along with certain experiences. Let's preserve it. Now there's unpleasant experiences happening, but I didn't go down with the experience. I caught it when it was happening and recovered my well-being. Does that make sense? If you're mindful, you can do that. If you're mindful, you can do that to a greater degree in more experiences. Both Nikki and I um, have been struggling with uh, long-term challenging illnesses. She has Lyme's disease and I have chronic fatigue. I got chronic fatigue as a monk. And so I had this year of very strong practice and then I got very ill. And the Vedana, my body, got incredibly painful. And because I was so mindful, I had to feel it. And if there had been a numbing option, I would have taken it. As dedicated as I am to my own enlightenment, the pain was so severe for so long, give me a way out. It was, it was very difficult, but I had to feel it. What that gave me was a chance to meet a higher level of challenge mindfully. It's like throwing somebody into the pool and watching the, you know, hopefully they'll swim. I was thrown into the deep end of the pool, lots of uh, suffering coming up. But I, I already knew that wishing it hadn't happened only made things worse. I could get some pity points from friends. That felt a little good, but it didn't actually help the underlying suffering. That would have been easy, but not that satisfying. That would have been my only strategy if I had not trained. And by training, I actually got to the point where it did happen, this is happening. My body is in pain. Oh, thank God. I can meet this moment's experiences, but what about tomorrow and the next day? Let's not add tomorrow and the next day to this experience. It's already hard enough to meet this experience. Okay, I'm meeting it moment by moment. And then I realized it came in waves. So I didn't actually have to deal with it for the last 15 years I've had it. It comes in waves. So when the waves are strong, I meet it moment by moment. The waves pass, I relax. Another wave comes. Pain is like that. It's very rarely on at 10 and stays at 10 the whole time. It tends to come in waves. So you learn to meet the waves. By doing that, I uncoupled my sense of well-being from a very difficult stream of experiences, having many years of this illness. And it's been a great training because now, more radically than I ever knew possible, my sense of well-being is unflappable because I've actually had a very intense training to keep recovering my well-being and not by numbing out from what's disturbing. That's an old strategy but by meeting the experience as it is and then sorting out my well-being from the challenge. You go into the pain, your mind gets reactive, you calm your mind down, and then you have a mind that's calm and present even when it's in contact with something unpleasant. When you do that, the desperate strategies to find some other future, please get me out of this, also calm down, and you start having choices what can I do? I'll see doctors. I'll see if there's something I can do. Maybe change my diet. There are choices to reduce the suffering, but they're not obsessive choices. This is how we work with Tana. Tana comes up. It tries to help. It tends to be very agitating. It tends not to be a very conscious strategy, but it has worked through evolution well enough, but it keeps you embroiled in that strategy of obsessing about your happiness and your future, hoping that that's going to lead to a type of peace and it only works so far. The other way is to recognize when Tana is arising, when your happiness is dwindling and it feels precarious and locked up in the way things are going to turn out and you relax out of that strategy. You recognize you're getting caught up and you learn to untangle yourself from it, calm it down, calm down that strategy at least let the tanha go dormant again. The long-term strategy, I'm gonna switch tracks here, talking about tanha. The long-term strategy on tanha is to undermine what feeds it. What feeds tanha is misunderstanding. 
not seeing the way things are, we crave them. Not understanding what pleasure is, that pleasure is temporary, that pain is temporary. Not seeing things clearly, that is the ground at which tanha thrives. The metaphor for this I'll offer is um, people used to get all these diseases born out of mosquito bites, and people still do all over the world. So people feel illnesses and distress. The source of it is the mosquitoes. The mosquitoes thrive around swamps. So if you have a lot of standing water, not running water, but standing water, you'll have mosquitoes. You have a lot of mosquitoes, you have a lot of mosquito-borne illnesses. Those are the links. If you want to get rid of the illnesses, you need to get rid of the mosquitoes. Killing all the mosquitoes one by one is an impossible task. You can try, but they just reproduce and there are more mosquitoes. If you empty the swamps, if you get rid of the stagnant water, the mosquitoes can't thrive and the illnesses can't thrive. In this metaphor, dukkha is like the illnesses that arise. Tanha is like the mosquito and ignorance is like the swamp. Not seeing things clearly, tanha thrives. When tanha thrives, dukkha thrives. The long-term strategy is to undermine and eradicate our misunderstanding. That takes out the tanha. That's the goal of the uh, Eightfold Path is to uh, disassemble, break apart our misunderstanding. That's the, the, the bulk of our um, meditation practice. One part is just to calm all the agitation down. That's the first part. The second is to begin understanding life more, more clearly. That understanding undermines tanha. If you really know things are impermanent, you don't chase after them as much. You see, it wasn't worth the effort to obsess that much about something, and then you get reality. You fall in love with somebody, a big crush, you chase after them, you get them. That seems like a great strategy, but then you've just joined a human, and humans are complex. <laughs> humans are a mixed bag, and so the very thing you were chasing for your happiness, now you've inherited another human who may or may not be all that awake and you're not all that awake. And now you have two people living out the pleasures and pains of ordinary life together. And it wasn't what you thought it would be. The Tanha um, suggested you'd be happier. The brochure said you'd be happier. But the actual experience has dukkha within it. Knowing that when the obsession comes up, you see it as distortion. I'm really distorted. All I can see are the pleasant experiences promised by the brochure of my tanha. That's wisdom. Wisdom undermines tanha. When wisdom becomes established, tanha has no room to thrive. It has nothing to feed off of. So that's a big thrust of what we do here is deepen our understanding of the things that undermine tanha. Knowing anicca, knowing impermanence, knowing that dukkha is woven through life, just those two things weaken our tanha, weaken the very game it wants to play, weaken the, um, the confusion it can cause. And that's the basis of our practice. That's the basis of what we're doing here is to get at tanha and get at confusion, get at ignorance. Any questions about that? Anything bubbling up for you? If you, um, We'll have time to digest this also, but if there's anything coming up for you right now, I'm just curious. Yes, I think it is. Is it? No, no, it, it's good. Um, if you don't want what you're saying recorded, let us know and we'll turn it off. I can actually pause the recording. Yeah. 
So just so you all know that. So I agreed with everything you were saying and with the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral and then disassociating mentally. But what confused me was it seemed like then you're trying to maintain a positive or neutral mind state, which seems like a kind of striving or going a different way. Yeah, that's a great observation. So that's a whole other level of sophistication when we really mature in our practice, we begin to realize that the happiness of enlightenment, we might have framed it in a way that that's becoming. We're trying to become happier, trying to become more calm. The difference is, and what matures over time, there's still room for desire, there's still room for cultivating Um, a positive future, but it's not driven by confusion. And it's not driven thinking that's where my happiness will be down the road. The way you get there is actually by finding happiness here and now. So when I have a grumpy mind, I might be able, it might be skillful to just calm it down. And therefore I'm reducing my suffering and that brings up clarity. That's one strategy. Another strategy is actually to go right into the grumpiness, which is unpleasant, and be mindful right here and now and start recovering right here and now my well-being. Let the grumpiness be there, but watch how it's actually gotten entangled with my sense of well-being. Like, yeah, I'm just as grumpy, but I'm not suffering. I'm just, this mind is grumpy. And what feels like, it feels like me within me is calm but the other me in me is agitated. The other me doesn't feel like me. It just feels like, yeah, this is really, I'm in grumpy situation. It's like I have a really bad roommate who's me. (laughs) I'm my bad roommate, but my bad roommate gets to have a bad day. This body gets to feel pain. This mind gets to get grumpy. But I relax within it. Then if I go about reducing the grumpiness, welcoming the grumpiness to calm down. It's not because my happiness depends upon it. I actually can start to kind of calm myself down, but my happiness is no longer entangled in the outcome. So I try to calm myself down and it works, great. Try to calm myself down and it doesn't work, yeah, this is challenging. But my deeper sense of well-being has been recovered, even if I have a grumpy mind. So in that way, that's actually profound practice. Sometimes we do need to calm things down because we just, we're so caught up. We don't stand a chance of doing anything skillful. We will just suffer if we don't calm things down a little bit. But true liberation comes by going down into whatever is happening and finding peace within it first. And then working skillfully to do pain reduction, which is fine, but it's no longer that strategy isn't um, desperate because you've found a way of, of being at peace with the way things are, then the outcome doesn't matter so much. It, it would be nice if things worked out one way, but you can actually take either outcome. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for that question. Um, can I go back to the cookie? Yeah. Um, okay. So... I wish I could, too. (laughs) So you're eating the cookie. You realize that's the source of it. You have options. One is to never come back to that place again and go to a different place. And the people behind the counter say, that guy came in every day, and now he never comes. And I I have no idea why he never came back. And you kept it all to yourself. That same issue repeats itself throughout our lives, right? you see someone running water, you're in a drought. You just want to say, hey, can you turn the water off? Yeah. You, a corporation's polluting, and you're thinking, like, well, I just can't let them pollute. Your government is uh, going to war. I just can't let the government go to war I don't agree with. All these sort of things are what we deal with all the time. Right. Your example is a very sort of basic, but it seems like you could have also just simply gone to the counter and said, really, this brand is not good. Can, can you consider maybe having both? 
That's a great question, and it's a great observation. This practice is not meant to make us passive. It can actually make us very productive to be agents of change. You will be much more effective as an agent of change if you're not desperate, if you're not full of your own anxiety. You tend to repel people um, if you approach them in a very agitated state. It means that they have to be grounded enough to sort out what's happening. So in that one situation, the line was so long. It's like the cookie, the line, I think we're all going to do better if I just deal with this. And maybe at another time, on a less busy day, I can say, I'm not sure if you tasted the difference, you changed the brand. I could have had that conversation. I don't remember having that conversation. But definitely, um, as I've become more free, I'm such a better agent of change in my family, for example, because I'm not as triggered. I'm not part of the problem. Ten years ago, once my family dynamic started going off the hook, I'm one of them. I'm just, we're all trying everything, and everything ends up doing exactly what it's done before. Every strategy I employ ends up being something we've already tried, and it just feeds the system. It's like, there's no way out of this thing. As I become less reactive, oh my God, I never knew there was that option. Or people, I think we really need to focus on this. That's not important. This is. So I actually, and they sent in me like, oh, you're not desperate. You're not trying to manipulate me for your happiness. You actually feel like you're okay. So what you're saying doesn't have this tone of stop doing it because I, I can't take it anymore. I was like, I can't, I don't want to live my life by making you happy. I'm trying to be happy myself. Oh, wait, wait. The tone of what you just said sounds wise. I want to hear what you have to say. We did this when I worked for the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. There was a real understanding that <clears throat> two, two opponents will fight until one loses and then the other one wins. But that other opponent hasn't been convinced. And so they'll kind of go and try to get more power and they surge back and then there's no end to that war. It's just temporary and you have to keep beating down someone who doesn't agree with you if you're in opposition. It's a different thing when you approach someone and this is, it's fairly sophisticated to do this where you can say, um, I see what you're doing. I'm not sure it's the wisest thing. Can we talk about it? You are much more likely to have that conversation if you're not triggering someone that they can sense that you don't like them, that you're judging them, that they're going to lose power. Like, let's create a solution together. What does that look like? There's this woman uh, named Luna who lived in a huge redwood tree, and she lived in it because, so it wouldn't be cut down. And she had time to go down and talk to the person who was the head of the company and say, I respect the tenacity at which you've approached this problem. If the two of us worked on a problem together, my tenacity to stay up in the tree and your tenacity to cut it down, we could really create something beautiful together. He didn't take that option, but there was a, that was as close as not just doing this forever, but finding something where you could actually co-create a solution together. I'm gonna trigger you less if I'm calm, if I'm authentically calm if I actually can talk to you in a respectful way, even though we're disagreeing. So solutions that are born out of the fact that I can deal with the way things are, but couldn't we make them better? That has more hope to it than I can't stand the way things are, they have to be different. Some things change that way. Like we all could agree very quickly that it's too hot in the room, we turn the air conditioning on. But if someone has like, it's too hot in this room, oh, I can't take it. Then we have to problem solve someone who's really agitated and we find a solution. But we've kind of inherited some of the agitation. So we found a solution, but there's also this agitation to it. We don't want to become so content that we don't do anything. It's not about becoming inert, but it's about taking out the suffering and the confusion and then doing pain reduction. The Buddha taught for 40 years. He, he almost didn't teach because he thought, it would be so vexing to teach and try to get humans to wake up. It was so, this is such a delicate thing. And he said, I'm only going to teach a couple people, people I think are going to get it. He was willing to do that. But then he kind of, more compassion came and he taught more and more people. 
So he was willing to make a difference, but not because he was attached to the outcome. If he spent 40 years teaching and no one woke up, that wouldn't have bothered a Buddha. He would have had compassion, would have understood this is very difficult, but his own well-being would not have been broken because he wasn't helpful. But when he saw other people awaken, he exclaimed, it is happening, so-and-so has woken up. So maybe this, I probably have talked it enough at this point, but we don't calm down and then lose motivation to change. We calm down so we become better agents of change and we really can focus in on what's worth doing. And thanks for that question. That said, also like with the uh, previous question, if you really want to change something, you would better know what you're changing. So any one of us can say, I want the world to look this way. And we can paint an idealistic picture. And it's unachievable because we're not actually growing a real possibility. You have to actually know a problem well enough to know what solution is actually going to be effective. I had a friend who went down to Los Angeles and lived with the community for six months to learn how they had actually affected change in a local community. She lived with them. She didn't want to get their cliff notes. She didn't want to get their bullet points of what they did. She wanted to really see how does a successful social movement happen? What do you really have to understand so you can grow a true outcome out of that? She wanted the change. She was an activist in San Francisco, but she knew a, um, a surface solution would have a surface result. What's really the problem here? You have to sometimes live with a problem before you find the deep solution. When they didn't know mosquitoes brought on uh, malaria, they called it bad air. They knew they were in bad air. They were near a swamp. And they knew that had something to do with malaria, but they couldn't do anything about it. Once they learned mosquitoes were the problem, then they could actually do something about the malaria. Once they learned the mosquitoes came from the swamps, and if they drained the swamps, they killed mosquitoes. And so now in the United States, it's very rare to get malaria, dengue fever, yellow fever, still happens, but it's very rare because we've actually changed the underlying conditions. So we're not spending a lot of time working with the illnesses. We've changed the underlying conditions. That's what a Buddha was able to do. A Buddha was able to go down to the very root cause, see things clearly, and articulate it so that ignorance could be um, disassembled, diminished, and finally eradicated. That's what eradicates tanha. That's what eradicates dukkha. So Mindfulness, intimacy within a problem gives you a chance of actually transforming the problem. Thank you both for those questions. Anybody else want to share on this? Then we'll just take a break. This uh, discourse on the two arrows has become one of my favorite because um, I'd heard about it for years but never actually read it. And then one time I tried to read it and it was longer than I thought it was going to be. It was more complicated than I thought it was going to be. So I, I was like, oh, I, I think I already understand it. So I didn't. Really. And then at one point I read it and really tried to understand it and then started to see what it was pointing at. The trend of running away from pain seems like a noble one. Why would you ever endure pain? But that tendency to run away from pain causes resistance, it causes patterns in the heart and the mind. And then we get so stuck with the only way we know how to get out of them is to obsess about pleasure. And so this whole complication begins to develop because of an a, a non-ability to meet unpleasant experiences as they are. And knowing they're impermanent you can wait them out. You be with them. You be with them. <laughs> You're with them. And it's knowing that they're impermanent, that you just have to deal with them moment by moment, that undermines the compulsion, the desperation of getting out of them. So I hope that was interesting to read that sutta. Um, I printed it out because it's really worth having. I constructed this uh, translation of it from two different uh, authors, Tanasaro Bhikkhu and Yana, uh, Yana Ponika, the elder Tara. Um, 
and then left some of the Pali in there because I think it's instructive. So um, you might want to read this over. You can read it over in the afternoon during the silent period so you you take that into your understanding of why would we spend that much time becoming familiar with pain? Are we just um, sadists when we ask you to be intimate with pain? Or is there a wisdom trying to be cultivated in that and to be uh, wise in relationship um, to this Vedana part of experience? So thank you for your attention. Let's take a good long 15 minute stretch break uh, in silence. And we hear the clacker. Let's come back for the second part of the afternoon. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.